Well, greetings, Providence Baptist Church. My name is Zach Carter. It's a, plev- it's a privilege to be here with you today. I want to thank uh, pastors Blair and Brian for inviting me and the elders for having me at this beautiful church. Um, it's really a pleasure. Uh, as uh, Brian mentioned earlier, I serve on staff at a sister church in town called River Tree Church, uh, and I'm one of the associate pastors there, but I have loved Providence for many years. It's a dear and faithful congregation. Many of you probably know my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law, Susan and Jimbo Taylor. And uh, so it's an honor to be in this building with this people and uh, be with the saints of the Lord on this morning. The sermon uh, title today is called A Big, Big House with a City View. Uh, I wasn't going to uh, come up with a clever title until my friend Brian Faru, who brought the word last week, had an awesome sermon title, and then I was like, well, the pressure's on, man. And uh, I gather that K-groups are starting, okay, so uh, if the, uh, feel free to throw the guest preacher under the bus, K-group leaders, if, uh, if it doesn't pass muster. But I, I trust today it will because we're, we're gazing at heaven. There are, a few, there are a few things which can captivate and motivate us in godliness and holiness better than gazing at heaven. That song, that, uh, uh, that title takes its name, of course. It's a play on a song from 1993. There was a band called Audio Adrenaline uh, that had a song called A Big, Big House. And uh, you might remember this song. It's kind of a goofy song, Big, Big House. And it presents this vision of heaven, which is lots of fun, feasting, and football. And uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so that wasn't a song that I grew up uh, I grew up knowing, I grew up in a Mormon house, so we had like Book of Mormon stories kind of stuff that we sang. But uh, I, I bring that up to you just to say this, that that song is a song that many of us think about when we think about songs like heaven, and it has influenced us and in our views on heaven. And so what I want to do is to take us to John 14 today, where the song gets all of its language from, and see what does Jesus have to tell us? What does the Savior of our soul have to tell us about heaven? What is he doing? Where is he? And, uh, and, and, and where are we going? If you're the person who likes to take notes, the main idea of my passage today is this, that Jesus' final work is to bring the redeemed to the Father. Jesus' final work is to bring the redeemed to the Father. And I want to ask two questions of our text today. Where is Jesus And what is it like where he is? I want to ask for God's help this morning. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege of preaching. I know, Lord, that um, everyone comes to this room with various concerns, various, um, various weights on their heart, various joys even, perhaps, I'm sure knowing, Lord, that we're all here together and and we're all needing a word. It's not me that's going to give the word. It's going to be you, Holy Spirit. So I pray that as I preach and by your grace rightly divide the word that you would speak through me, build your church, Lord, I pray, through the preaching of the word. Help me be faithful and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord. pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Our New Testament reading today was all the way uh, through verse 14, but I, uh, if you will, am going to focus on verses 1 through 4. 
for my passage today. I'm going to look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. I'm a young preacher, and so if I'm not very disciplined and limit myself, I will go over. So I have to be very disciplined and give myself four verses so that you're not here for a dissertation. Verses 1 through 4 says this, John chapter 14, let me put it right back in front of us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, it's my understanding that you have kind of my general outline in front of you, but I have kind of three things for us to see in our text today. The first is that Jesus' work is to prepare a place for his saints. Jesus' work is to prepare a place for his saints. The second thing that I kind of want us to see, the second main point is, I want you to see three things, and I'll define them when we get there. I want you to see three things that God's word tells us about that place that Jesus is preparing for us. So let's take each in turn. Jesus' work is to prepare a place for his saints. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shows us that Jesus wrapped up the final moments, the final moments with his disciples, with this sermon, with, these, with this discourse. If we go back to chapter 13, verse 1, it says that Jesus loved them until the end. These are, in a way, Jesus' final words, and he opens up his final words by telling them that he's going to do something. He's going to prepare a final place for them. And if we think about all of the work of Jesus, that Jesus' work is to bring the redeemed to the Father, his cross, right, his life, his cross, his death, his burial and resurrection and ascension, all of those things function to bring the redeemed to the Father. And Jesus opening up these last moments with the disciples, telling them where he's going to go. And as much as he's permitted by the Father, he's pulling back the curtain, as it was, of redemptive history, and he's telling his disciples, I'm going somewhere. I'm leaving. And they don't understand fully. They don't see fully. We know this. But if we use our sanctified imaginations, we can imagine that the disciples feel as if the kingdom of heaven is a work in progress at this moment. Right? It's a work in progress. They, they have certain, you all are familiar with the Bible, they have certain expectations about what would happen when the Messiah would come. We'd have a new kingdom. We'd, 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 uh, we'd have, instead of, a, you know, we, you'd, ride in, you'd ride in Jerusalem on a noble steed, not a borrowed cult. You'd put the Romans in their place right? So it's kind of a work in progress. We put, if we put ourselves in their shoes, they're seeing it's a work in progress. Jesus promised certain things about the kingdom, and yet they don't seem to be here if we're the disciples. Jesus knows this because the word I'm leaving is a troubling word. He knows this, so he meets their frailty with a gentle exhortation. Look at verse 1 again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Notice what's that, what that is not. That is not, oh, you of little faith. There are times when Jesus does chastise rightly the disciples for not having faith. But Jesus understands that they don't understand fully the nature of the kingdom of heaven, so he's meeting them where they're at. You know what it reminds me of? Uh, we, have a, we have a son 
who started preschool this year, a little four-year-old boy named Ellis, um, and he, uh, he starts a new class. So we, we, we take Ellis to the classroom, or I'm taking him, it's early morning, and uh, so I'm taking him to his classroom, and it's time to drop him off, and Ellis, he's a bit afraid, because he's got a new class, a new teacher, and a bunch of people in his room that he doesn't know yet. I'm about to leave, and we have prepared for this for months. I'm telling you, we had to practice this. This is a real story. But there's a moment of anxiety in him because he knows this is not practice, right? Because that is actually leaving. And the feeling that he feels is, are you going to come back for me? Like, where are you putting me? Who, who are these people? He feels an acute fear of what? The unknown future, right? He knows kind of what's on the other side of that door, but he doesn't know, like, what's on the other side of, of the door again. Is, is dad going to be on the other side of that door in six hours? So what do I do? I bend down in Ellis's ear, and I whisper, do not be afraid. You can't come to work with me. You can't come to work with me, but I will come back and take you home with me. This is one of those moments in redemptive history when we see the love that Jesus has for his disciples. It's the love of our older brother kneeling down and whispering into the ears of the younger brothers, the disciples, trust me. Jesus wants to ground our settledness in the future to come in the character of God. So he doesn't just say, don't worry about it. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Verse two, or verse one still, believe in God, believe in me also. A promise without reason to believe that promise isn't much help at all. So Jesus grounds the promise in the character of two people who cannot change, the Father and the Son. If you're taking notes, the next thing I want you to see is that Jesus is telling us to trust that your Father in heaven has a room for you in the Son. The first key to settled peace regarding the unknown future about the new heavens and the new earth is to trust the Father. If you have an ESV in front of you, which I think most of you do probably, you'll see this translated as the word believe. And I'm not here to undo English translations. I don't like to do that, but what I would like to do is to turn the prism on the word a little bit, just to turn the prism slightly, because sometimes when skeptics when they'll critique notions of heaven, they will just say, Christians are just hoping for the best. It's, faith is just kind of a holy hoping for the best, right? Hoping it all pans out. So I'm gonna turn the prism on the word believe slightly so they can ask a question and perhaps give you a new word that will help you understand what Jesus is doing here. Jesus wants for us to trust that the Father is doing something. Jesus wants for us to trust that the Father is doing something. He says, believe in God. It's not hope that God's going to work it out. Instead, it's trust that God has done something for you in the Son. Well, what has the Father done? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 2, in the Father's house, there are many rooms. There are many rooms. Now, there's a warmth to the imagery here, which I don't want to pass by you. Why would a home comfort the disciples? Well, think about it. In their immediate context, they're living in occupied Israel. And if we read our text, uh, excuse me, the text that was read earlier, Isaiah 65, we talked about the new heavens and the new earth. What is promised? That they would build houses and other people would not live in them. 
that they would plant vineyards and others would not take the fruit from it. And yet, the disciples are in an occupied land, the Romans are occupying it, and the houses that they've built and the vineyards that they've planted are being enjoyed by other people. So when Jesus is giving them this home language, he's comforting their heart, and he's reminding them that we're all wandering and waiting for a home. Brian made a great deal last week about tent language in Scripture from 2 Corinthians, so I won't go into that other than to say that from Eden, you and I don't live in occupied Israel as first century disciples, but since Eden, you and I have also been homeless in a way. Now, we have dwelling places, but since the fall, we've been driven out by human sin of the presence of God. And since then, human beings have been wandering. They've been seeking, and they've been looking. And by the grace of God, we have heard that we have a heavenly Father and have been adopted by the Son and brought into the kingdom which he is building and has already built, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are billions of people who are homeless, and they're trying to create for themselves some sense of home. Paul talks about it this way. They're lying to themselves, and they create righteousness for themselves. They're sowing, they're sowing modern fig leaves together. Your sanctified imaginations can tell you what those are. There's a thousand variety. But all of us, all of us are wandering because we've been driven out of the warm hearth of God's presence into the wilderness, so to speak. That's why the overwhelming majority of language in the New Testament talks about all of us as sojourners and pilgrims. But God, even after he, after he expelled the people from the garden, he has been gracious and he draws them in. You all are familiar with this. And he establishes his presence with them. Why? And why has God built a house with many rooms? Because he obligated himself before the foundation of the world to glorify the Son in the redemption of sinners. Before the Son went to the cross, the Father knew exactly the full number of all who would believe. And so when the Son, when the Spirit through John tells us to believe in God, we are to trust that God really has done something in Jesus. There is a home at the end of our pilgrim road. Now the language of home here, permit me to get a little technical, is analogical. Right? God is, God the Father is immaterial spirit, meaning he doesn't have a body. But this language is condescended to us because we all know what a warm home feels like on a cold, icy day. But we shouldn't say that the word home or house is figurative because there is a place, a real place in space-time where God the Father is, where, the, where the, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his bodily form is, and, and even as we try to make sense of that, we're scratching at infinity. And we will, never, we will never really know the secret things that belong to the Lord, but in just a little bit, I'll try to ask questions, what is that place like? But before we do that, I want us to see, again, that we should not be troubled because the Father has made room for us, for all who believe in the Son. The second thing that Jesus would have us see from this text here is that we are to trust that the Son will return to bring us to himself. You see in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. 
Why do you think that Christians find so much comfort in the promise that Jesus will return and bring him to ourselves? I think it is because we long for rest from the weary travels that are this life. Ever been on a trip you enjoyed so much, but you were relieved just to collapse back on your own bed? My wife and I, in 2018, we had the real privilege of spending a few weeks in Europe. Um, uh, we were doing a mission trip and tacked on um, an anniversary trip on the end of it. So we were in Paris, northern France, Amsterdam, and Munich, and the trip was great. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we fondly remember scenes together, especially on the mornings when we're trying to, uh, to feed little tyrants like lukewarm oatmeal, right? We just go back to France and think, Oh, we love our kids, but oh, to be eating a baguette with brie on it. Um, But that said, there is a sweet moment, and there was a sweet moment for us when we got home, key in the door, deadbolt clicks, open the door, and you smell the, the sweet, familiar scent of home, right? You take off your shoes, swollen from a way too long airplane flight and delays in Charles de Gaulle, and you collapse backwards onto your bed. We all know that feeling, right? We longed and loved travel. We waited for that trip, but we also longed for home while we, while we were away. And I say that to say we can have both, really. We can have both. We can enjoy the sweet providences of God in this life, the smile of those children eating that lukewarm oatmeal that they love, right? But also still long for our true home, the presence of God. James Montgomery Boyce asked a question in his commentary on this passage. He said, why, why is John 14 so popular? The answer is probably because, quote, of the warm image that is found here. Heaven is a home. We need a home. We long for a home. Jesus calmly told his disciples that we have one, end quote. We have a common condition, we humans. We've been driven out of a place that we were created to enjoy, a a place to be with real warmth and comfort. Eden was a perfect place where the presence of God rested heavy on us. But human sin entered that place and drove us out, and ever since we've been building shelters for ourselves with bricks and mortar. But really, Those are just brick-and-mortar fig leaves, trying to hide ourselves, right? Exposure from being driven out of our true home, the presence of God. The New Testament language, like I've already said, overwhelmingly refers to Christians as pilgrims, exiles, those people who are without a final home. It's a telling truth what the New Testament says about us, about our subdivisions. Subdivisions aren't bad. I live in one. We are not home. So what are our subdivisions? Well, they're beautiful, but their main purpose, right, is because we have to hide from meteorological conditions, from from wind and from rain, from icy cold, from extremely hot, from tornadoes, ice storms. We have to hide. We have to hide ourselves in our homes, that's the purpose of them, to keep us sheltered. And every time that the wind howls, it's a reminder to us that the earth is groaning, Romans 8, 
and that we really aren't home even when we're home. And we need for our home to be restored, the home which God has built for us, the presence of the Most High God. And we need to be brought back into the presence of God so God became like us to bring us back to himself. Jesus, the work that Jesus does on the cross is to become like us so that he might condemn sin in the flesh, that he might give us his righteousness so that we can inherit a home that does not belong to us but we're qualified to live in it because we've been given the last name of the owner. We've been given a room. The disciples don't know this fully yet, but Jesus is about to leave them bodily. But he's gonna return to them and then ascend to heaven. They don't have pictured fully what is about to occur. We have John chapters all the way, all the way to the end of the book, and they're, in, they're living in John 13 right now, John 14 right now. But these words are for us as well. Jesus wrote, or John wrote this after the resurrection, and you and I are on the Holy Spirit's mind when the words, let not your heart be troubled, were inspired. The Holy Spirit was thinking about you, so as much as this is for them, it's for you as well. Do not be troubled, saint. The Holy Spirit is thinking about you, and he's telling you that God the Father has done something in the Son, and the Son has gone to prepare a place for you. Verse three is connected to the doctrine that we don't normally give attention to the same way as the resurrection, but without it, we don't enter heaven. The author of Hebrews helps us to know exactly what Jesus is doing in between his death and his burial, and his, uh, excuse me, after his death, burial, and resurrection, and in his ascension. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11 through 28, I'm, I'm not gonna read the passage, I'm gonna summarize it for you. We see clearly that Jesus enters the court of God. The father and son, what they do then is they send the spirit, which does this. It kills the flesh of all the redeemed. It makes you and I new creations. So that the sinner in me is made a new creation. It gives us new life while we wait for our bodies to be glorified. I still struggle to keep my members from sinning. And one day I'll be given a body where it doesn't revolt against what I want to do. Verse three, or excuse me, and then third, it keeps us, the Holy Spirit keeps us until the Son returns to save us who are waiting on him. John is gonna give us those details until, uh, throughout his gospel until chapter 18. But in this period of time, while we're waiting, this period of time that you and I are living in, after the writing of chapter 14 to 2021, Jesus' delay in returning is not out of slowness. It's not out of slowness. Jesus hasn't forgotten about us. He's not just waiting until he just feels like getting up out of the chair he sat down in after making purification for sin. For 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, quote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count as slowness, but he is what, you all know, patient towards us not wishing that any of us should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, when I was a, a new convert, I used to uh, joke, you know, I just wish Jesus would come back now and just take me right up to heaven. And I, I do mean that. Uh, and I do mean it now. I wish he would come back now. Lord Jesus, come even now. But I'm glad he's patient for Ellis and Rose, right? I'm glad he's patient for my kids. I'm glad he's patient for my family. I wasn't planning on sharing any of this, but my brother, the Lord is drawing him 
to himself now, my brother is considering leaving the Mormon church and trusting in Jesus, right? And so God's, God, Jesus waiting to come back is not him being slow. He's patient. He's waiting for all that he's called to come to faith. And indeed, Jesus will return. If he left, he says he's coming back. So I want to ask now of the Bible, all of it, we're going to move to a little bit of a biblical theology of the whole Bible, what is that place like? What is the place that Jesus is preparing for us, has prepared for us? What is it like? Where will he take us? What is it like? I think Scripture gives us three pictures and they clarify, to clarify what life after death is, right? It may be new for you, but we're actually going to look at the beginning to understand the end, okay? The Holy Spirit, I think, inspired these little, little frosted portholes, right, to look through in the Old Testament that are obscure, that it's really difficult to see fully through, but now in the New Testament and through the prophets have then expanded like this beautiful window where you can see the sky. We can see fully now using the New Testament. So we're going to go to the old and pick up the, the seed and see how it's fully grown into an oak to switch metaphors. The first thing that I would like you to see is that place is a new creation. That place is a new creation. What I won't do here, hopefully not disappoint you guys, what I won't do is, is give you and uh, do like what Randy Alcorn did and just give you like 30 bullet points of things you can expect in heaven. I've got three, okay? And uh, it should be sufficient, I trust. That place is a new creation. The prophet Isaiah records a vision of what the new heavens and new earth will look like no more weeping, no more infant deaths or premature deaths of our mothers and fathers. Our labors will not be in vain and they will not be the spoils of another. Our work that we do will not be toil and the children that we bear will not be born for calamity. Verse 25 is most familiar with you all. I'll read it for us. Isaiah 65 verse 25 says, quote, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. I love that last line of the prophecy. Why? Because it takes us back to the original creation moment when a curse is pronounced on the serpent, when the serpent really will forever scurry in the dust. So, let me make it more plain. The new heavens and the new earth that God will create is this, it is a, a reversed curse and a restored Eden. When Jesus, you see, took the curse upon himself on the cross, he disarmed the evil one and condemned his work to futility. That's why Colossians tells you that he's disarmed all rulers and authorities. And that's why you can actually, with the Spirit's power, resist sin and temptation because Jesus disarmed the evil one on the cross. But when he returns, when our Lord returns, we see in Scripture that he will cast down he will cast down the evil one, and, uh, and he will suffer eternally for all of his schemes. But when Jesus ascends to heaven, and he ascended to heaven, he also did so as the second Adam. And that means that when he did that, after the resurrection, this means that he, igno he inaugurated the creation of a new humanity. While the first Adam had disobeyed God in a perfect place at a perfect time, the second Adam proved himself to be faithful in the worst possible conditions in the hardest of times. 
And we, by faith, are brought into union with him, and we become like him. This is why Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That belongs only to those who are in Christ. Where you are in Christ, you have the, the image of the one of heaven. You become like Christ. And that qualifies you to live in this new creation. Where Adam failed, you're now invited to live. The new creation is such because the first creation is refined by all of the effects of sin in fire. And it's recreated. And from that death, a new creation is fashioned. The, image, the imagery in Revelation is symbolic, but that does not mean it's not true. It actually means words fail to describe how total the new creation really is. When we say something symbolic in Scripture, what we're really saying is that we're trying to grasp at the infinite with finite words. We read these majestic passages in, in Revelation 21 of the new creation, Rivers and trees lining rivers and leaves that give life. Those things are meant to be read literally, yes, but they're also meant for us, to rep for us to recognize that we can't possibly scratch at how wonderful this place will be and we're only groveling for words to find to describe it. This means the redeemed of the Lord who labored for peace on this side of eternity will finally enjoy actual peace. War, strife, and the injustice of this present age will not pass away, though, until the tree is given from heaven when the nations are healed. So we can say this, heaven is a place where the curse is reversed and Eden is restored. It's a new Eden, but it's restored. We have a home again. We're not just living in a wilderness, though, no, because the second thing I'd love for you to see is that that place is a temple city. That place is a temple city. Now to the city. There's something special about this city, about this place that God has us. I'm going to take you to Revelation 21 now. Revelation 21. That city, there's something special about it. And the command of God had been to spread the, the, to spread the glory of God over the face of the earth. And there's this interesting thing that happens. Every time that people gather together to build cities in the Old Testament, they're full of iniquity. Every time people gathered together in the Old Testament, especially in the, before the patriarchal period, right, to build a tower or whatever, uh, the people who built cities were not favorable people. The biblical author Moses does not portray them as, as good people. But here, there's something different about this city. God has done something in this city which is different. Revelation 20, 21, 22 tells us that there will be no temple in this city. Well, Zach, you just told me it's going to be a temple city. How's there going to be no temple in the city? Well, the temple in the Old Testament gave God a place to dwell with his people where the people would be kept safe. You see, God would not be hidden from his people. God covenanted with his people. He was going to live in their presence. He was going to be with them, and they were going to be his people. But because of their sin, they had to be hidden behind curtains. So God would not be denied of his people, so he told them, build me a tabernacle and hide me behind curtains and walls so that I will dwell with you but not consume you by my presence. The reason Revelation 21, 22 tells us that there's no temple in the city is because without the presence of sin, there are no need for walls or curtains. 
It's, it's shocking to the Jewish ear. We don't, we don't hear it this way. It's shocking to the Jewish ear that in the eschaton and the end time that you would see God face to face and live. And yet that's the promise of the book of Revelation that you will dwell with God and he will wipe away your tears? Elijah had to hide in a rock. Moses, right? They had to hide. They couldn't be seen. They couldn't see God. They would be destroyed. And yet God will wipe away your tears. A temple city, it's the place where God will live. Regular sacrifices were made to purify this, the temple, the Old Testament temple, because the sons of Adam weren't holy enough to see God. And always for them, the temple was a reminder of the, they were in a place where they weren't supposed to be. And that, because you know this, because when you go in the temple, the walls and the, the ceiling, everything would be, would be carved with what? Familiar with your Old Testament language? Be carved with scenes of Eden, trees and vines to remind you of Eden and to remind you that you weren't in Eden, that you should be there, but you weren't. But here in the new heavens and the new earth, God gives a city from, the, from heaven, and read with me verse 10 through 21. Verse 10 through 21. <clears throat> and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 gates of angels, and on the gates, the names of the tribes, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Listen to this city's description. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. I wonder how long that measuring stick was. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. One day we'll know what that is. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass, and the foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, second sapphire, third agatite, and the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the fifth caroline, the seventh crystallite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth crystalphast, the eleventh jasophast, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate was made of a single pearl. How big are those pearls? To have a gate made of a single pearl? And the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the, Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light is the Lamb. And by its light will nations walk, and kings of the earth will bring their glory in it. And the gates will never shut by day, and there will never be night. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter, nor anything who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is a majestic passage to me, and the luxury there is not figurative. 
John is searching for words to describe the majesty of what he's seen, and the best he can come up with is a cube. Jerusalem was always geared for war. Today, even, if you go to Jerusalem, the walls around it are from the Ottoman age. They're so giant, nobody can do anything with them. But here, well, and and now really, if you go into Jerusalem, there are barbed wire fences and people fences to try to keep the Palestinians and Israelites away from one another in a city of peace. No, a place that is under threat of constant invasion does not use precious stones to build its wall. You don't use gold or a pearl as a gate if you're building a city that's going to get ready for war. Zion City is a temple city because God dwells with his people and they will see him face to face. Revelation 22, 3, 4 tells us, for the faithful Jew, a curtain hiding the presence of God was the best they could have hoped for. But the presence here establishes the utter submission of the universe to the king of kings and lord of lords. There is a pearly gate because there is no one to make war against the city because Jesus has made war and won, and it's done. Heaven is the place, then, we could say, where God is available to us face to face. Last thing I want us to see is that that place is, in closing, that place is a fulfilled Sabbath. It's a fulfilled Sabbath. The Sabbath pattern, of course, starts in the garden. You all are familiar with this. On the seventh day, God rested. Cessation from work is a pattern that looks forward to a day when work is no longer cursed. And in a very real sense, you and I live in the Sabbath rest of the Lord Jesus Christ today. So when the author of Hebrews pulls out of Exodus 20 the idea that that, uh, that that Sabbath rest is entering into salvation, that's true. You and I are no longer striving, doing works to earn our salvation. But there's something special about heaven. There's something restful about heaven that I can't possibly say better than Augustine. So permit me to quote him from City of God. He says this, quote, In heaven, there, he says there, but in heaven is context, there we shall rest and see, see in love and love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom that there is no end, end quote. Augustine's saying this, God brings us to himself And that presence is itself a new creation. It is a temple city where we will be with God face to face. And he doesn't bring us there to make us slaves, to cause us to strive. But he brings us there to give us rest, the rest of his presence, the tender love of his son, to display, as Paul will say in Ephesians, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So you could say this, heaven is the restful presence of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has prepared a place for you. It is his work to do that. And he's working now, even now, to do that. And do you know what? One day he's going to return. He's going to bring us back to that place and prepare, and that he's preparing for us even now. Let me, let me close this in prayer. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see heaven and give us eyes to see a place where, as prophet Isaiah says, the lion will eat straw like the ox, that children won't die young, no more infant deaths, no more premature deaths of our parents, no more errant viruses or variants or variants of variants, no more need for hand sanitizer, hospitals, oxygen masks, no more ventilators, but Lord, a place of boundless joy, endless peace, and perpetual rest. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see it, and Jesus, confirm it in our hearts. Help us to believe it. Give us your faith to believe the Father and you, the Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.